Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We'll continue our discussion of the Sabbath from last week, as well as Jesus' calling of the apostles and his calling of us as Christians. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't I open us up with prayer? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for this group and the opportunity to gather together as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning. I ask you to just lead our discussion. Let it be your words, not mine. Guide our discussion. Put on each of our hearts what we need to hear this morning. We thank you for your word and all the blessings you continue to give us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in Mark chapter 3. And as I had mentioned when we first started this Gospel of Mark, it moves very, very quick. And we continue to see he uses the word immediately quite a bit. And just to summarize where we've been, Mark's Gospel began by Mark telling us that Jesus is the Son of God. And he has spent the last two chapters pointing out how that is affirmed. In chapter 1, he said it was affirmed by the Old Testament prophets and then also confirmed by John the Baptist. And then God the Father actually spoke when Jesus was baptized and said, this is my son. Jesus then goes on to prove that he is indeed the son of God. He shows his power over Satan through the testing that Satan put him through. He shows his power over the demons Jesus then showed his power over disease, the way he's been curing people that we've been reading about. We discussed last time he has power to forgive sin, and we also discussed last time he has authority and power over the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. No one in the Bible record ever denied his miracles. Even the Jewish leaders never denied his miracles. Instead, they say he gets his power from Satan. We probably won't see that today, but I'll give you one reference to it. If you just flip over to Mark chapter 3, verse 22, it says, And the scribes came down from Jerusalem, were saying he is possessed by Beelzebel, which is Satan, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Beelzebel is also sometimes referred to in our scripture as Beelzebub. And Zabel actually means dung. So that actually means Lord of the Flies. It's a reference to Satan. That's what they sometimes refer to as Satan. But they never deny his miracles. They just say, yeah, sure, he was able to do that because he's possessed by Satan, which I find fascinating. Let's go back over to verse 1. We'll pick up where we left off, chapter 3 of Mark, verse 1. And Jesus entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Okay, let me point out a couple of things. This is most likely a different Sabbath than the Sabbath that we left off at the end of chapter 2. Remember, it was a Sabbath, and they were eating grain in the field, so they were in the countryside. Let me show you where I get that. Go over to Luke 6, 6. Luke is just over to the right. This is talking about the same event we see in Luke 6, 6. It says, and it came about on another Sabbath. So that's a different Sabbath than when they were eating grain that he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. So this is a different Sabbath. But we've also seen that Jesus typically would go in and preach on the Sabbath. That was a typical thing that he then did. 
Now, this man, let me just give a little background here before we go forward, and I think it'll help kind of clarify some things. We're going to see in verse 2, and they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. It's pretty likely that the Jewish leaders placed this man in there in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He has a withered hand, okay? So this is not a life-threatening disease. And their man-made rules for the Sabbath, a doctor couldn't heal anybody on the Sabbath unless it was life-threatening. They're trying to trap him. So it's very likely that they place this guy in knowing that Jesus is probably going to heal the guy because Jesus would heal anybody that would come to him. In that way, they can trap him for violating their man-made Sabbath rules. I'm just setting up what's getting ready to happen here. And of course, the Jewish leaders, they hate Jesus because he has continued to not obey their man-made Sabbath rules. Let me show you a couple of verses on that because I think that'll kind of help set this up. Go over to the Gospel of John. That's just over to the right. We'll go to John 10, and I'll begin in verse 31. It says, The Jews took up stones again to stone him, being Jesus. And Jesus answered them, and he said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. That's why they killed Jesus. They don't deny his miracles, but because he claimed to be God, and because he was violating the Sabbath. Let me show you one other one. Stay in John and go over to the left just a few. I think it's John 5.18. Yeah, John 5.18, it says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. They're trying to trap him. He's violating their Sabbath rules, so that's what's going on in the background. So let's go back over to the text, Mark chapter 3, verse 2. And they were watching him, these are the Jewish leaders, to see if he would heal him, this man with the withered hand, on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. As I said, they've probably set up this whole situation to trap Jesus, hoping that he would heal on the Sabbath. Verse 3. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, rise and come forward. Let me show you something before we keep going on. I meant to mention this. Let me show you Luke 6, 8. Go over to Luke 6. I know I'm skipping around, but sometimes you have to do this, as I mentioned with Mark, because his gospel moves so quick, he leaves out some of the details that some of the other gospels pick up. I had mentioned we were in Luke 6 a minute ago where I said in verse 6, And it came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose hand was withered. Verse 7, And the scribes and the Pharisees, so now we know who it is, were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. Verse 8, But he, that's Jesus, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Arise and come forward. And he arose and came forward. Again, the Old Testament doesn't prohibit healing on the Sabbath, but their man-made rules, their regulations that they had come up with, only allowed a physician to work on the Sabbath if it was life-threatening, and this certainly was not. Jesus could have waited to heal this guy on the following day, which would not have been the Sabbath. 
But this really makes these Jewish leaders mad at Jesus now. But he did exactly what they set him up to do, probably. Go back over to Mark chapter 3, verse 4. So Jesus knows what they're thinking, so he asks them a question. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. So Jesus puts them into this dilemma. They knew he was right, that he was doing good on the Sabbath, but they weren't going to answer what he was saying. Let me show you a little more detail. Go over to Matthew 12, so that's over to the left the Gospel of Matthew, and he also points out a few more things to them. I'll just pick up in verse 10 because it'll pick up with what we were just reading in Mark. And behold, there was a man with a withered hand, and they questioned him, questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him? Verse 11, here's the new detail. And Jesus said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. So you can see Jesus knows what they're up to, He authenticates his authority as the Messiah, being able to show that he's Lord of the Sabbath and he also can heal, but he had violated their Jewish tradition, their man-made laws that they had come up with. Okay, let's go back over to Mark. And the thing is, these Jewish leaders, they were more interested in trying to bring harm than doing good, and they really didn't care about this man with the withered hand. They were just using him as a way to try to trap Jesus so that then they could come up with a way to try to kill him. And the thing is, the intent of the Sabbath was to do good, not to do harm or do bad things, but they wanted to kill Jesus. So let's look at Jesus' reaction to them. Verse 5 in Mark, it says, And after looking around at them with anger, so Jesus was angry really at their unbelief because he's done all these miracles and yet they still are rejecting him. And he's also grieved, it says, grieved at their hardness of their heart. He was saddened that these people are going to be eternally separated from God forever due to their stubborn rebellion, even though he's been trying to show them that he is, in fact, the Son of God. He still said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored. So it was restored immediately. This is an undeniable miracle, and they knew he would do it. It's like they set him up knowing that he's going to do this miracle. Verse 6, And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. So let me mention this. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they rarely agreed on anything. Who are the Herodians? We know the Pharisees are part of the Jewish religious leadership. They're the legalistic ones that have all the rules. The Herodians, they're Jewish really just by blood. They don't practice all the religious rules that the Pharisees did, but the Herodians, they are aligned with King Herod. They're supporters of Rome, which is, again, why the Pharisees don't like them, because the Pharisees can't stand Rome and being under the authority of Rome with Roman rulership. And so they really don't like the Herodians, but here they agree because the Herodians actually didn't like Jesus because of all his popularity. They viewed him as a threat to Rome. 
So here you've got two groups that don't like each other very much, but they're going to be aligned in trying to get Jesus killed. They both reject him as the son of God. And so now they're aligned to try to destroy or kill Jesus. Verse 7, And Jesus withdrew to the sea, so this is the Sea of Galilee, with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. So Tyre and Sidon are to the northwest. Edomia is in the south. And it says, And a great multitude heard of all that he was doing and came to him. So these people are coming from everywhere. There's people hearing about Jesus, and they're coming from everywhere. But we know, and I've showed you several times, while they're following Jesus, they don't have saving faith. It's more like they just like to watch the magic. Because over in John 6, 66, which I showed you last time, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So they're following him now, but eventually they're not going to follow Jesus anymore. And they're going to be part of the group that say, put him to death. We'll read about that later. So continuing on, verse 9, it says, And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude in order that they might not crowd him. And we'll see when we get over to Mark 4. You can read Mark 4, verse 1. It says, And Jesus began to teach again by the seashore, and such a great multitude gathered before him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and all the multitude were on the seashore on the land. So he has them get this boat ready in case he needs to get out to the water so they can still hear him. He may have been a little concerned about, although he is God, but the crowd was really coming in on him. So it may have been a safety thing, but it was certainly, as we saw in chapter 4 that I just read, he used the boat to be able to get away from the crowd so that he could address everyone and everyone could hear his teaching. But they loved his miracles, and so they're all coming around. Anybody who has any type of ailment is coming to Jesus for healing. We see in verse 10, for he, Jesus, had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. He would always try to heal people, but he didn't come to heal. He came to save, and he wanted to get the gospel out. He didn't want to just be known as a physical healer. He was a spiritual healer. But remember, the Jewish people viewed anybody that had these physical afflictions as people who God was punishing. That's how they viewed it. Now, it says in verse 10 that he healed many. You need to understand that doesn't mean there were some that he didn't heal. Because our language can pick up, well, yeah, he healed many, but maybe there were some he didn't heal. That's not a proper translation. He healed everyone who came to him. That's just talking about there were a ton of people that he healed. That's what that means. Verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits held him, they would fall down before him, they'd fall down before Jesus, and cry out, saying, You are the Son of God. So the demons know who Jesus is. And as we've discussed before, there was a lot of demon activity around Jesus because they feared him. Normally the demons, they masquerade and they hide, but they can't hide from Jesus. And Jesus, will see, he does not want any of the demons testifying on behalf of Jesus 
because he knows the religious leaders are trying to say that Jesus gets his power from Satan. He does not want to be aligned with demons at all, so he always tells the demons to be quiet. We'll see in verse 12, it says, And Jesus earnestly warned them not to reveal his identity, and that's why. He knew the religious leaders were saying that he got his power from Satan, So the last thing he wanted was Satan's army also testifying on his behalf. He doesn't want to appear to be aligned or part of them at all. He doesn't want them vouching for him. He doesn't want to have anything to do with Satan or the demons. So he's telling them just to be quiet because nobody's going to listen to a demon anyway. If the demons are saying it, it makes you even think more that, oh, that's a lie because Satan is the king of liars. So he didn't want demons saying anything about him. But clearly, they all know who he is, and they always obey him, which shows that Jesus has power and control over the demons. I think that's another good place to point out. There are lots of people who say, oh, yeah, I know God. I believe in God. That's not enough. The demons believe in God. You can even say, yeah, I know who Jesus is. They know who Jesus is, but they're all going to hell. So knowing God and knowing who Jesus is is not enough. Jesus has to be your Lord and Savior. There's scripture that says, yeah, you know God. Great. You're just like the demons. Yeah. And they're going to go to hell. They know who he is, but that's not enough. You got to place your faith. You got to realize that you are a fallen sinner. And the only way you can get right with God is accepting the free gift that is offered to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and have your sins forgiven. And demons don't do that. And it's not about works or earning your salvation. That's not what we're talking about. It's about acknowledging that you are a sinner and you can't get right with God on your own and you need a Savior. And thank you, Jesus, for dying. I believe you're the Son of God. You came to pay my debt, a debt I couldn't pay, and I place my faith in you. And even that's a stumbling (laughs) block because it's like it's too easy. Right. It's too good to be true. I got to do something. I want to contribute to it. Uh, A loving God wouldn't make it to where some get to go to heaven and some don't get to go to heaven. And what did they do to earn? And the whole world's caught up in what what do Christians do to earn this right to go to heaven when they're sinners just like the rest of us? And you've got to have that explained. It's not what we do. It's not what we earn. It was given to us. And he wants all to come to faith. He wants everyone to. You've just got to receive the gift. I'm faced with that all the time. People say, but you keep saying God's a loving God. Then he wouldn't send anybody to hell. All paths, all religions lead to God. And I go, you're right that every path leads to God. We're all going to stand before him. But the only ones going to heaven are the ones that put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he's not doing that. That's up to you. You're choosing that. You can either choose to believe or choose not to believe. So it isn't God sending you to hell. You're selecting that. It's hard for people to understand that. Now we're going to read about Jesus choosing the apostles, the 12 apostles. And we'll spend probably just the rest of the time talking about that. Verse 13, and Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. Okay, I got to take you to some other places because that's just a few words of actually what's going on here. This is typical of Mark's gospel. Let me take you back over to Luke 6. Go back over to Luke 6, and I want you to look at verse 12. And it was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, 
and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Okay, so he's getting ready to choose the apostles. But what does he do first? He goes up to the mountain by himself to pray to God and to seek God's will on who he should select as the 12 apostles. And this is very good for us because when we're making big decisions, we need to go and rely on the Holy Spirit and on God the Father, seek God's will through the power of the Holy Spirit in our prayer. We've been given access to go directly to God. That's what Jesus has given us. We don't have to go to a priest. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray to Mary. We go directly to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no verses in the Bible that say go pray to Mary or go pray to St. Peter or St. Paul or anybody else. Why would you go pray to somebody dead when you got the Holy Spirit living inside of you to pray to God? We've been given direct access. The Bible is clear that Jesus is the intercessor for us. Not St. Peter, not St. Paul, not some other saint, not Mary. The intercessor for us is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so we've been given that access. Why wouldn't we use that access rather than praying to people who are dead? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't hold the apostles and Mary in high regard. They did amazing things, and God used them in a powerful way. I'm just pointing out that we should follow Jesus' model, pray to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. He relied on the Holy Spirit as well. He's 100% God, but he gave up some of his deity's attributes when he became man. And he is seeking God's will before he then chooses the 12 apostles. So now let's go back over to Mark. I just wanted to point out that I think that's really important here that Mark leaves out. So now in verse 14, and he appointed 12, and I'll come back in a minute and tell you why 12, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. By the way, the word apostle means to be sent out. What we're seeing now, Jesus has seen how the leaders are now going to try to kill him. His ministry is now going to change. Up to this point, he spent most of his time with the crowds and teaching to the crowds. But beginning now, he's going to focus more on pouring himself into the 12 apostles, training them to teach, because the church is going to be built on their foundation. Let me show you where I get that. Hold your place here. Go over to Ephesians 2.20. It's over to the right. Pretty good ways after Galatians 2.20. Actually, I'll begin in verse 19. Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So we are a dwelling. The church is us. The church is not a building. The Christian church is us. We are Jesus's church. And the Holy Spirit lives in us, comes in and dwells in us once we become Christians, immediately when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's built on the foundation of the apostles. You see that there? And I'll show you some more verses on that in just a minute. Okay, so let's go back over to the text He says that he might send them out to preach. So he's going to train them to preach. 
and to have authority to cast out the demons. Jesus also gave them authority to heal, to cure and heal diseases. You can see that in Matthew 10, 1. He gave them all that power to cast out demons and heal to authenticate that they were called, that they were the apostles. That's why they were given that, so that they could perform miracles as well. So Jesus personally appoints 12 people, and I'm going to talk about each one of them here in a minute, but let me set this up a little bit. And he wants them to be ambassadors for him after he departs, after his death, burial, and resurrection. It's clear that the Jewish religious leaders, they were unqualified to do this. They were no longer qualified to be God's representatives here on earth, even though initially God had selected Israel to be the selected nation to point people to the one true God. But what happened is they became blind, leading the blind. It says over in Matthew 15, 14. Let me show you that so you don't think I'm making it up. Matthew 15, 14 says, let them alone, talking about the religious leaders, they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. So they had not performed their function the way they should have, and they ended up making up all this man-made stuff. They were more about their own self-righteousness because they thought they had their ticket punch because they had Abraham's blood. And they ended up substituting all these traditions of men for the commandments of God. It says, and we'll get to it in Mark in a few lessons. I'll go over there and show you in Mark 7. Just flip over there real quick, and we'll discuss it more when we get over there. I'll pick up in verse 6 of Mark 7. It says, And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So they had come up with all these traditions, all these rules, all these things that really overruled what was written in the Bible. They gave more importance to this outward appearance of looking righteous rather than truly having a heart for God. Hey, Larry, can I just say something? Isn't it funny how the Jews did that? You know where I'm going on this. Isn't it funny how the Christian church has done that? You're absolutely right. That's, you see this in many denominations now. They've added a whole bunch of other stuff, and some of that even outweighs what's in Scripture. They're getting away from... What happens is man's pride comes in, and as soon as man's pride comes in and starts adding to and doing a bunch of stuff, then all of a sudden that becomes the thing. And then when you talk to people about it, They say, yeah, but this is what my father's and this is tradition and that's so important to me. And you're like, wait a minute, but have you thought about God's word? I see that all the time, even when I'm pointing out some of the belief, hey, some of the things I was taught as a child in the faith that I grew up in, in my home, I don't blame my parents. They were taught the same thing. Fortunately, somebody showed me the verses in the Bible where my theology was totally flawed And I started reading the Bible. And when you then read the Bible, that's the truth. And so you then come to people that have been taught some of these other things, just like I was mentioning earlier, to pray to these dead people instead of praying to God. And there's no scripture on that, but that's what's been taught. And so I point out to them, look, you got two choices. You can believe what you were taught 
or you can believe what's written in the Bible. I'm going to leave that up between you and God, but for me, I'm going to follow what God wrote in the Bible rather than what men have come up with. You can call him a pope or anything else, but if it's not supported in the Bible, I'm not going with it. And many of those teachings in some of these denominations are totally counter to the Bible, just like what I just described. It is totally counter to the Bible to pray to a dead saint or to Mary when the Bible clearly teaches to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is consistent through the New Testament. That's what it says. And even when Jesus was asked by the apostles, teach us how to pray, that's when the Lord's Prayer was given. Nowhere does it say, pray to Mary. Now, Mary did an incredible thing. She went through a lot to carry Jesus as her baby before marriage. The penalty of that was death, stoning, and she endured a lot. So I have tremendous gratitude and reverence towards Mary. But she can't intercede for me. There's no verse in the Bible that says she can intercede for me. And in fact, the Bible says, pray in the way I just said. Pray to God the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you can go directly to God, why would you go to a priest or to somebody else who's dead when it clearly says the Holy Spirit and Jesus are our intercessors? They intercede for us. Wouldn't you go where the Bible tells you to go to the interceder rather than something that somebody came up with? Yeah, I would say it's awful tempting for man and our inherent desire to control stuff to just come up with these rules. You can kind of twist a little bit here and push the edge there a little bit, and suddenly you have control. I guess it's a human desire in a lot of ways. I wonder if a lot of this comes out of that. Totally does. Yeah, yeah, totally does. Yeah. Seems it's, like. It's prideful, and we it's, want to do our own thing. It's, it's, it comes down to the same reason so many people reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior, because they want to do it their way. Yeah. But I will say this, when you go to a church, an organization or whatever that gets away from the spirit of the Bible, it loses its life. I mean, you go to a Jewish funeral or you go to a church that no longer has, there's no life there. It feels dead. It feels dead. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't have life. Whereas you go to a Bible church and it's just full of life, I think. I mean, that's my observation. Jesus over in John 8, Beginning in verse 43, he says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, meaning the devil. He, meaning Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? This is why when he is now going to, let's go back over to Mark, when he chooses the 12 apostles, they're not from the Jewish leadership. They were very common people from a diverse background. I'm going to give you some of that in just a minute. So why 12? Well, we know there were 12 tribes of Israel, right? And some of the duties, the future responsibilities of these 12 apostles will be to actually rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in God's kingdom. Let me show you where I get that. First, I'll take you to Luke 22. It's just the next gospel over. Luke 22, and I'll begin in verse 28. It says, And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. This is Jesus talking. 
And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so there's part of it. And then I'll take you over to Revelation, and I'm going to take you to Revelation 21, very last book in the Bible. And I'll begin in verse 12. And this is describing the new heaven and the new earth. This is after tribulation and after the millennial kingdom. It says, It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel are written on these 12 gates. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And here's the verse that I want to focus on. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So he chose 12, and they are the foundation stones for everything. They're the foundation stones for the church, as I showed you, and the foundation stones of what we're reading in Revelation. What you read from earlier in Ephesians with Christ as the chief cornerstone. And remember, I mentioned this a long time ago. When you think of a cornerstone, that's the first stone that's laid. And the first stone has to be perfect. The cornerstone has to be exactly perfect because the whole rest of the building conforms to that cornerstone. So Jesus was perfect. He's the first cornerstone. And then the church that's built on that cornerstone is in conformance with him. And that's the sanctification process we're going through that we will eventually be conformed to Jesus. Wow. They don't miss a beat, do they? <laughs> it all holds together. <laughs> just, that's perfect. So this is a very diverse group. They're untrained. They're common people. They have little status or influence in the culture. But God is going to use these 12 ordinary men as his instruments to accomplish his plan with his supernatural power. That's what's going to happen. So who are these 12? Let's look at the text. Verse 16 is where I left off. Verse 16 of Mark 3. And Jesus appointed the 12. Now, let me also set this up. Whenever the apostles are mentioned, they are mentioned in three groups of four. In the order of the names in the group, sometimes change when you look in the different places, but always the first name of the three groups is always the same. And so it's kind of like that's the leader of that subgroup. Like Peter is always mentioned first in the first group. The first group was the most intimate with Jesus. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, is always mentioned last. Always. Always last. I'm just setting that up. That's typical of how this is arranged. So he appointed the 12. Here's the first. Simon, who he gave the name Peter. And Peter is always mentioned first. He's always the very first one. He was the spokesman. Why did he surnaming Peter? Peter means rock is what that means. And if we have time, we can look at a couple of verses on that. Means Petra. Petra means rock. Verse 17. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. So these are two brothers, James and John. Now, there are lots of Jameses. Let's focus on James first. There's a bunch of James in the Bible. Jesus had a brother named James. This is not that James. This is James whose brother is John, and John is the apostle 
who wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote the three epistles of John, and he also wrote Revelation. So that's John, and his brother is this James. And John is the one that Jesus loved. When John writes his Gospel, he always identifies himself not as John. He always identifies himself, as you point out, as the disciple who Jesus loved. Yes, they were very close, very, very close. It says, and he gave them the name Benerges, which means sons of thunder. So these two brothers, I think Jesus gave them this name, sons of thunder, to remind them of their hot-headed nature. They tended to be kind of hot-headed. At one point, they asked Jesus, should we call down fire to light these guys on fire? They were sort of a, a rough couple of guys, okay? So he names them this to remind them that they had a judgmental attitude. They're very hot-headed, I'll say. And then the last of that group is Andrew. Now, Andrew is Peter's brother. Andrew met Jesus first and introduced Peter to Jesus. Andrew did that a lot. He was a guy that would go and bring people to Jesus. All four of these guys, they all lived in the same town there in Galilee. They were partners in the fishing business. Two sets of brothers in the first group. Y'all with me? Okay. Here comes the next group. Philip, and Philip is always mentioned first in the second group. Let me talk about Philip for just a minute. First of all, Philip introduced Bartholomew to Jesus. There's a bunch of Philips in the Bible. Some of King Herod's sons were named Philip. It can be very confusing, but where it's real easy to get Philip confused, there is Philip the Apostle and there is Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist is not Philip the Apostle. And you'll be reading along and you got to be paying attention. For instance, you remember when there was the Ethiopian eunuch and he was traveling along and he was trying to understand the scripture and all of a sudden Philip was told to go chase after the chariot and go explain the gospel to him and actually then baptized him and then disappeared. That is Philip the evangelist. That is not Philip the apostle. So it can be very confusing because there's so many names that are the same. All right, so that's Philip. And then we have Bartholomew. Now, he's sometimes referred to as Nathaniel. That's his first name. So when you go look at different lists, you'll say, oh, wait, it's a different list of names. It's because he also goes by, his first name is Nathaniel. Then we have Matthew. Y'all know Matthew. He's the tax collector. And then we have Thomas. You know him. He was the doubting Thomas. Remember, after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared. For some reason, Thomas wasn't there to the other 11. And then they tell Thomas later, hey, we saw Jesus. We saw Jesus. And Thomas said, I'm not believing it until I see him and put my finger in the holes in his side. And so that's Thomas. And then we have yet another James. This is James, the son of Alphaeus. So this is not James, the brother of Jesus. This is not James, the brother of John. This is a different James, the son of Alphaeus. Sometimes he's referred to as James the less or James the younger. He might have been younger than the other James. Maybe that's why they refer to him that way to separate him. But that's a different James. Then we have Thaddeus. Now this can be confusing because his name is also Judas, son of James. So now, <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't write this. Anyway, so Thaddeus is sometimes referred to as Judas, son of James. And then we have 
Simon the Canaanite. Now, he's also referred to as Simon the Zealot. This is interesting to me that Jesus would choose this guy. So the Zealots were a group of people. They were sort of Roman revolutionaries. They were so against, they were trying to overthrow Rome. So this is a guy that hates anything to do with Rome. Okay, so think about it. And then you have Matthew, the tax collector, who is aligned with Rome. He pulls together this group that you'd go, man, this is really a diverse group. You know what I mean? You got these two sons of thunder who just want to go zap everybody. It really is. It's like uh, Simon Zealot's more like your white Christian nationalist who's waving a Confederate flag around and don't tread on me. And then you've got the IRS agent who is embedded with the FBI colluding with everyone to make sure Trump didn't get elected. I mean, those are the two (laughs) people that are inside. Opposite ends of the spectrum. It's crazy. Let me round it out. And then we have Judas Iscariot. And that Judas, he's always mentioned last. That's why sometimes you see Judas Iscariot when Judas is mentioned so that you don't get him confused with Thaddeus in any event. So I didn't point out that sometimes you will also see Thomas, the doubting Thomas, referred to as Didymus. So that can be confusing. A couple of other little interesting notes. James and John's mother is Salome. And Salome is Mother Mary's sister. So that would actually make James and John cousins to Jesus. Okay, another little interesting bit there. I'm not sure about this. Where we see James the Lesser, it says son of Alphaeus. We also know that Matthew's father was Alphaeus. So they may have been brothers if it's the same Alphaeus. Do you know for sure? Or I mean, that, that's it's conjecture, a that's yeah. speculation that's yeah. always okay. been out there. And, you know, it might have been that they brought them together because, you know, James the Lesser was maybe more spiritually inclined. And so there's rejection and like Matthew are no longer part of the family. And so Jesus brings them both back. But who knows? That's, we're making that up. Anyway, all very common, ordinary men, diverse backgrounds, not leaders, not of high stature. And Jesus is going to pour his life into these for three years and then leave it with them and say, get the gospel out. And that is then our responsibility because they got the gospel out. We received the gospel, and now that is our responsibility to go and continue to pour into people, help them mature in their faith, and continue it on. If we don't do our job, then it isn't going to get out. And Larry, what's interesting, too, is that Paul, who is not originally an apostle, is the one that ultimately delivers the message to us, who are not Jewish, (laughs) which is another striking, interesting twist. Yeah, let me clarify that yeah. just, just a yeah. bit. What you say is right, but let me just add to it just a hair. Okay. You are correct that Paul wrote half the New Testament, roughly, and that Paul was the apostle for the Gentiles, which is what you're referring to. But it was Peter who was the very first one to actually preach to the Gentiles. Oh, okay. Peter was the first one to reach out to the Gentiles. I did, guess I didn't And know he is an apostle, which is where it gets weird. Because they nominate Matthias in Acts 1, but then all the least of the apostles, but he's an apostle. 
as on one untimely born. And so I think if you're going to look, you know, who are the names of the 12 in Revelation 20? I think Paul's name would be in there and not uh, Matthias. We won't know till we get there. There's a lot of debate on who is the 12th apostle. Who replaced Judas Iscariot after he committed suicide following his betrayal of Jesus. Is it Matthias or Matthias or is it Paul? We'll see when we get there. There's no way to know from Scripture. Some think that the apostles got ahead of themselves. We discussed that when we were in Acts to pick the replacement when Jesus just told them to go and wait. And maybe they got ahead of themselves. On the other hand, Acts is clear. It says, and they drew lots for them. This is in Acts 1, 26. And they drew lots for them and the lot fell to Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Does that make him the 12th? I don't know. There's arguments that go both ways. It also can be confusing because there's two more that are also called apostles, but with a little a, meaning they were sent out. It was Barnabas and Silas. Barnabas and Silas are... Given that title as as sent ones. Apostolos means sent. Sent out, yeah. I don't think they're one of the 12, but we'll see when we get there. Is it Paul or Matthias? Okay. And so just to kind of summarize what we've read today, prayer, so important. How often are we going to God with our prayers? And what an honor that we have. We're actually told we should be doing that throughout the day. When we're walking down the hall, when we're driving, we should be praying all the time, be in communication. And what an honor it is that we've been given that honor to be able to go directly to God, to the God of the universe. Really amazing. The second thing that I want us to think about is that while the apostles were called, Jesus called them, Jesus selected them, we've been called. Scripture is clear that as Christians, we have been called, we have been selected. And with that, we got a job to do. So what are we being called to do? Jesus has given us our jobs, our family, all the relationships that we have with friends and colleagues. We have those relationships for a reason. What does Jesus want to do in and through us in every one of those relationships? And I think that's something that we all ought to think about, pray about, seek discernment about. At the same time, we should have tremendous comfort knowing that Jesus did choose us. That's not a thing that we should feel that we're better than anybody else. It should humble us. It's like as messed up as we are, We've been chosen. God gave us our faith while we were yet sinners. And I've said this before, heaven and hell are filled with sinners. The difference is the ones in heaven had their sins forgiven. And we've got to just realize, wow, that Jesus chose us and made it where we could believe and put our faith and accept the free gift to get our sins forgiven. It's an amazing gift. And at the same time, with that comes a huge responsibility. And are we doing what God wants us to do with the responsibility and the gifts and everything else he's given us? How are we doing? Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.